For RCR Wireless News, I'm Joey Jackson, and welcome to another edition of Cell Tower News, where we talk about the backbone of the wireless industry. Today, we're going to talk to Trey Nemeth of Stealth Concealment about concealed towers. Today's episode is brought to you by Telecom Careers, the number one global telecom and wireless job board, telecomcareers.net. For 20 years, Nate has been the undisputed global leader in safety, standards, and education for the wireless broadcast communications infrastructure industries. All right, welcome to the show. And before we get right into the Concealed Tower talk, let's uh, check in with our Jared Matula, who writes our cell tower wrap. Jared, what's going on in the tower industry recently? RCR Wireless News has been following a case of equipment theft from cell phone tower sites in New Jersey. We initially reported that two homeless men were charged with 80 counts of burglary, theft, and criminal mischief in connection to 15 cell tower equipment thefts. Now a third homeless man has been arrested and charged in relation to the incidents. Every major carrier was hit by the thefts, with towers from AT&T, Sprint, Verizon, and T-Mobile US all being affected. Patterson, New Jersey Police Director Jerry Speziali said more than $125,000 worth of damage was caused among all the thefts and burglaries. The main suspect is Christopher O'Connell, a 37-year-old man from Georgia who previously worked as a subcontractor for the tower industry. He apparently used his previous experience with towers to commit the crimes. In other tower news, the National Wireless Safety Alliance now has its leadership in place. The organization's board chose Art Pregler, director of National Cell Site Programs at AT&T, to be its head man, and Phil Larson of Hazon Solution as vice chairman. Pregler and Larson were formally nominated and elected by the organization's board of governors at the NWSA's inaugural meeting in Denver, Colorado. The governing body of the organization will be made up of 28 representatives and tasked with developing policy and overseeing the activities of the various NWSA committees. The NWSA is a nonprofit created to standardize safety practices in the tower industry. The organization is working on a universal skills assessment and certification process for tower workers with a big emphasis on safety practices. That's all the cell tower news for right now. On Fridays, check out my cell tower news wrap on rcrwireless.com. Back to you, Joey. All right, thanks for that, Jared. So let's get into the heart of what we're talking about today, concealed towers with Trey Nemeth, VP of Operations for Stealth Concealment. Trey, thanks for joining us today. Let's first start off by asking you a little bit about Trey Nemeth. Uh, Trey, what's your background? Well, um, my name's Trey Nemeth. I'm the Vice President of Operations for Stealth Concealment Solutions. Um, I've, uh, I've got a degree in mechanical engineering and uh, I've been with Stealth for for about 18 years. Uh, so I've been involved with the design and manufacture of uh, thousands and thousands of antenna concealment. Okay, Trey, so let's talk about your company a little bit. Tell me about Stealth Concealment. Stealth is uh, founded in 1992. Um, we build, we design and build structures that hide antennas. Um, in short, we are uh, we're a custom design and manufacturing company. Um, we're headquartered in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, but we ship uh, concealment products all over the country and occasionally overseas as well. Um, we really only specialize in antenna concealment. So um, even though we've been in business for uh, about 23 years now, um, we haven't really diversified outside of that. We, we like to think that we're uh, 
uh, we're the industry leader in, uh, in concealment. We founded the industry, and so we've stayed uh, true to our, uh, our core set of uh, capabilities. All right, Trey. And as we all know, there are a lot of places you can put a concealed tower. Can you give us some use cases? Where do you see the installations happening most? Um, we, you know, generally, um, we don't know where the work, where the projects are going to be from one year to the next. It, it kind of, it's a little bit of a moving target, but in general, um, we're being asked to conceal uh, cellular sites and wireless sites in areas that have uh, more strict zoning regulations. So as a general rule, those tend to be in uh, uh, suburban um, areas of uh, surrounding larger metropolitan areas, if that makes sense. Um, but in general, we're being asked to put the uh, concealed uh, sites up uh, wherever zoning or, uh, or a landowner or building owner dictates that it has to be done. And so do you see more of these in the higher end neighborhoods than you do in maybe some of the lower income neighborhoods? Yeah, I'd say definitely so. And I think that, you know, that might just have uh, to do with the fact that in a, in a higher end or more affluent neighborhood, there might be more of a, of a demand for concealment because of stricter zoning or because of, uh, of a neighborhood or, or, uh, or area associations that are uh, trying to keep the area looking as nice as possible. Um, you know, certainly the, the not in my backyard crowd definitely influences the amount of work that we get in a, in a given year and in a given location. Uh, you know, that being said, um, the, you know, we see work, uh, we see the need for concealment uh, popping up literally all over the place. So that's a general rule that you probably see it in the higher end, um, higher end suburban uh, neighborhoods surrounding larger metropolitan areas. But um, in general, we see it anywhere. So anywhere that, uh, even if it's, if it's not a, you know, would not be ordinarily considered a higher end area, if the zoning rules dictate that it has to be concealed, then it has to be concealed. Or if the, uh, if the property owner or the landlord requires it, then we're generally asked to get involved with that type of project. All right, and so do you work with a lot of carriers on these installations? And so who are, who are most of your customers? Uh, almost all of the domestic uh, you know, United States uh, wireless consumer work that we do are for, the, for all of the wireless carriers. So who is our largest customer in a given year? It kind of varies depending on how many sites are being, are being built by each one in a given year. But the short answer is we do work for all of them. Um, so, you know, we're, um, uh, we, we work for, as far as the customer types that we work with, I think like a lot of other vendors to the wireless industry, um, the company who actually writes us the purchase order um, might not be a wireless carrier. It could be a project management company. Oftentimes we get orders from uh, A&E firms for, for our design engineering services. Uh, we get orders for materials from installers and contractors. But ultimately, uh, the end customer are, are, the, uh, are the large wireless carriers that, uh, uh, that, that fuel the wireless industry in the U.S. So do the concealments ever result in any interference? You know, you know in general, and this is something that I've got a lot of experience with, um, we have, uh, anytime you put material in front of an antenna, it's going to cause some kind of loss or reflection. Um, so what we try to do is come up with a, uh, with a portfolio of different concealment materials uh, that will perform the best for the specific site and application. Um, oftentimes there's some trade-offs between uh, materials that can be used in extreme hot climates, for example, and RF or radio frequency performance. So, you know, in general, we try to do, we have a, a lot of testing documentation on our materials. Um, 
our customers, you know, every year are asking for some different things that they want us to look at as far as the way the materials are, are concerned. But in general, you know, once we've uh, we've got a certain set of design criteria that we try to meet, where we uh, frame the structures and build the structures in such a way that we're we're minimizing the amount of structural members in front of the antenna path, and then we're using exterior cladding materials that minimize the amount of insertion loss that's caused to the antennas. And so it's something that we we learn about uh, year after year. But in general, um, the the reports of, uh, of actual uh, loss problems or um, interference problems due to our concealment materials is extremely minimal year after year. Um, and usually when we do get a report of that kind, it's usually determined uh, in the field that it's attributable to something else that's there. So that's, uh, um, so it's, it's always, uh, you know, one thing to consider too is that we're not just concealing uh, transmit and receive antennas, which are operated at a relatively low frequency. Uh, we're also oftentimes uh, concealing higher frequency microwave backhaul antennas. And those tend to be much more sensitive to concealment and other materials being put in front of them than at the lower frequencies. So in some cases, we have to use special materials that will allow the transmission of the higher frequency signals only in front of those antennas, where we might use uh, a more typical concealment material in front of the transmit and receiving antenna for the site. And so as we all know, DAS and small cells are on the rise. Do you see the percentage of DAS and small cell installations that you are doing increasing? There's a lot of buzz about DAS and small cell in the industry right now, obviously. Um, and uh, that has, uh, has influenced uh, the concealment world as well. Um, we're, right now, we're um, uh, in the range of 10 to 20% of our work um, over the past few years has been DAS and small cell. And when I say 10 to 20%, I'm looking at the actual quantity of sites that we're building. Um, so that, that's a relatively small percentage, but that's up from 0% uh, just, a, you know, just a few years ago. Um, so it is on the rise. And um, the other thing to, that's to consider is that uh, from a concealment perspective, oftentimes the DAS and small cell projects tend to be pretty large um, projects for us, um, especially in the large venue DAS applications, stadiums. And arenas and that kind of thing, where instead of a, a traditional macro cell site where we maybe were concealing three antennas or 12 antennas, uh, for a large venue stadium application, we may be concealing 150 antennas. So although the quantity of the DAS and small cell is still a relatively low percentage of our total work, um, the, the actual number of concealments that are built or even the, the complexity makes them a, a bigger part of what we do. There's, we pay a lot of attention to them, and they take a lot of, a lot of effort to, uh, to get them correct. So, yeah, Trey, you mentioned stadiums and other large projects. What is the largest project that Stealth Concealment has worked on? It's a, it's a challenging um, question. You know, when we, when we talk about size, um, initially I was given some consideration to the, the actual physical size of the concealment. So we do some really large tower projects year in, year out. Um, they generally max out around the 200 foot tall range. Um, generally, we're you know looking at uh, large monument type uh, applications or or clock towers, bell towers, that kind of thing. They're they're huge uh, structures um, that uh, that require a lot of uh, uh, a lot of attention. But um, on the flip side of that, you know, oftentimes the, the stadium uh, DAS applications tend to be very large projects as well. But they come in the form of you know, 100 
small concealment, where the concealments might be section marker signs in a stadium, for example, um, and we're building uh, 75 of those, um, you know, where you know, you're talking about a box that might be three or four feet wide, um, but there's a, a very high quantity of them, and they have to be, um, you know, very uh, durable because they're right where the public can, uh, can see them and touch them, and, uh, you know, you're, you're, uh, they're right there two feet away from the public as opposed to a tower, which might be 150 feet away. Um, it's a different set of standards as far as the uh, as far as the, the, the visual qualities uh, concerned. If that makes sense. All right, Trey. So I'm sure that you've seen a lot of creative ideas when people are trying to conceal these towers. What's the most creative one that you've seen? The, uh, I was, uh, you know, I, I get to ask this question pretty frequently, and uh, because we're uh, we're a custom uh, design and manufacturing company, um, there are a lot of creative designs that go through and. My answer to this question kind of varies depending on the, the site that I'm considering, but uh, one does come to mind. About 10 years ago, we were asked to replace a, uh, a roof on a, um, about a 100-foot-tall windmill in New England that uh, was uh, roughly 150 years old. And so we had to replace the entire roof, work around the existing windmill structure and blades. Um, we had to replicate the existing cedar shake shingles uh, to match this dome-type roof on the top of a windmill tower. Um, a lot of effort, you know, and obviously that's a long time ago. We've got a lot of water under the bridge uh, since then. Um, but I just noticed a photo of that uh, of that project in my office uh, when I was on the way to give this interview, and I said, you know, that that has to be a high on the list of creative sites. Um, you know, we, uh, we we get some other ones too that that are maybe relatively straightforward for for us from a design and build perspective. Um, like we've got a large one that's uh, that's gotten some press. That's a uh, it's a just a, a slick stick concealed pole, but it's painted to look like a giant number two pencil with an eraser on the top and so forth. And so if that one gets a lot of attention. I think that's a really creative idea um, and a relatively straightforward and simple uh, concealment design. All right, Trey. Thanks for joining us and giving us that insight. And so last week we took a look at a picture from one of our tower groups, Tower Climbers of America, of a pile of snakes way up high on a tower. This reminded me of an interview I did a little while back with John Paleski of Subcarrier Communications for our Tower Story segment. He has a story similar. Let's take a look at that. One day I was climbing one of our towers in uh, Tennessee and uh, I got up to about the 300 foot level and on one of the platforms near the top of the tower there's a rattlesnake, a live rattlesnake. And rattlesnakes can't climb towers. So it was, it was a shock to find a snake of any sort up on a tower, but a rattlesnake just made it all that much more dangerous to, to, to encounter. So, so what we figured was some kind of a bird swooped down to try to catch the rattlesnake and eat it and flew away with it and dropped it on the tower. I mean, and, and, there, and there he was. As soon as we got up there, the rattlesnake was right there, right in our face. Well, what do you, but what, do you, what did you do? Well, what can you do? You stay away from it. <laughs> so you you just kind of had it have hit its yeah. side and then yeah. So 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 there he was, and, and and you automatically can see it's a rattlesnake, and you just gently move away because rattlesnakes, believe it or not, are very docile. They don't want to bite you. 
So even a, even a rattlesnake up on a tower is not going to want to bite you. So you just move away from it and continue about your job. But, but very memorable. All right, and so there you have it, another episode of Cell Tower News. We'll see you next week. Cell Tower News is a production of RCR-TV. To reach Joey Jackson or suggest a show topic for Cell Tower News, contact him at jjackson at rcrwireless.com or on Twitter at duck underscore jackson. For more Cell Tower News, please visit rcrwireless.com.